0: Everybody, welcome back to the Rose Woman Pod. It's Christine, your host. Today, I am completely thrilled to be talking with Latham Thomas. Latham Thomas is known on Instagram as Mama Glow and as Glow Maven, and she is a doula. She is a trainer of doulas, but more than that, she's a person who lives her life in a way to encourage other women to be connected to their highest and best self, to practice self-care, self-love, self-respect, to advocate for maternal justice, for women's rights, for gender medicine and gender justice. And overall, she is just a beautiful human being. She writes on Instagram about her relationship, for example, with her son, Filano. And one of my favorite posts was when she said, you know, since he was born, I've basically blessed him every day. And this sort of That's the kind of conscientiousness she brings into everything she does. So we have a conversation today that runs the gamut from what does it mean to be in love with your feminine self, to know all the parts of your body, uh, to take care of yourself, all the way to maternal death rates. I went and did some research after recording the pod, and I was shocked to find out that if you live in Arkansas or Kentucky in the United States you have a 10 times greater likelihood of dying in childbirth than if you live in Sweden, and that America has the worst maternal death rates in the developed world, and worse than many countries in what we would consider the underdeveloped world. So it's not a great situation. So we cover a lot of ground in this, and I hope you really enjoy the conversation and are spurred to take action. Uh, for your own well-being and for the well-being of mamas everywhere. And now without further ado, Latham Thomas. I'm so happy to (laughs) meet you in person. Um, I've been following your Glow Maven. I've been following Mama Glow and you know you're you're doing such wonderful things in the world. Welcome Latham Thomas, Mama Glow, Glow Maven to the Rose Woman Pod. So happy to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Christine. Yeah. So I would love it if you would tell a little bit of your backstory, like how did you come to be a super doula and this advocate for women in all stages of their reproductive lives? Yeah, well,
1: I'm now in my 17th year of raising a son and um, in the journey that I've had with him, just like raising him and particularly around the pregnancy uh, i would say that was a very pivotal moment for me in um you know exploring the hidden dimensions of the body and learning about um what will become i would say the sort of rudiments of this work for me uh, was definitely those those seeds were planted during my pregnancy um but even before that if i think about you know my upbringing and how i was introduced really to the magic of the body and particularly um, my beginning journey into body literacy started when i was four and um, my mom was pregnant my aunt was pregnant and my great aunt were all pregnant at the same time due within a month of each other march april and may and that was going to be the year of 1985. And so I turned 5 that year. I got a sister 10 days after my birthday and it was life-changing because what I watched happening around me really influenced the way that I saw the body. And so um uh, my cousin and I would stuff cabbage patch dolls under our shirts and pretend to deliver each other's babies and that was like our dramatic play. Um my mom would take me to you know, the grocery store and places with her and while she was visibly pregnant. People would always, you know, interact with me about being a big sister. And I remember my mom always really calls out the fact that um, one of the things that was, I guess, uh, a watershed moment for her when she realized that she had done a lot in this education area with me was when um, we went to a um grocery store and someone says to her oh you have a baby in your in your tummy and I said no she has a baby in her uterus and it's gonna come out of her vagina and there was this sort of like you know she's like a little bit embarrassed but also proud you know and she's like yeah she's just really excited you know whatever and And, um, but I was not only excited, I think I was really Mm. uh, fascinated. And, um, you know, being able to watch shows on PBS that sort of guided me through the process was also really helpful. So I think that the overall journey was one that definitely the seeds were planted when I was small and they started to sort of bloom during my pregnancy and um, bring me closer, I would say, to the calling um, which really, I would say, became more apparent um, after my son was born and as I was sort of reflecting on the empowering experience I had in childbirth and how beautiful and magical and mystical it was, I knew that I wanted to protect that experience for other birthing people. And so that's what I sought to do. And, um, and that's what you know, I continue to do in, in many forms today. Uh, through, you know, programming and through education. Um, but certainly I would say that all things, you know, start at the seed level. And for me, it was definitely like a a tiny idea and and something that sort of got planted for me that took me along the path.
0: Yeah, I love that story about your your mother and the sort of nesting within a community of women at this tender age when you're really becoming aware, like switching from magical thinking to scientific thinking. It's kind of a liminal age five. And and you used the word a couple of times. You said the magic of the body, the magic and mystery of the birthing process. So I, it, I think you describe yourself somewhere as a sorceress. <laughs> so I wonder like, if you can speak a little bit to this enchantment lens that you seem to bring to your work with what is in modern medicine kind of um, cut and dry, I guess. Well, I think that, you
1: know, the body is a magical um, place. I think that it's a sacred place. And it's something that, you know, culturally we've, I would say, um, turn people away from their bodies. Um, and so, I think that you know part of what our um discovery and our unlearning entails especially along the doula path and, and certainly with what we teach is that um you know our bodies are sacred sites and there we have this sort of intimate topography and it's Meant to be explored by ourselves. It's meant to be uncovered in every facet so that we can come to know ourselves in the most intimate of ways. And I believe that, you know, we can alchemize, you know, the experiences that we've had that have turned us away from our bodies and come into relationship with ourselves in ways that um, we never thought possible when we uh, seek to go a direction that's opposite of what you know, the sort of dominant culture teaches us, right, which is that your body is not good enough, and it's not beautiful, and it's, and it's ugly, and it's, you know, um, you know, flawed, and, you know, we sort of internalize these beliefs really early on, and they're communicated to us in various ways and through various experiences, and what I seek to um, uncover in others is like a um, a relationship with oneself and in one's body that, um, that's liberating, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when we talk about consciousness around, you know, reproductive rights, reproductive justice, um, and, and even using a reproductive justice lens in the framing of our, the arc of our reproductive journeys, um, you know, we can't really have a conversation that is seated in empowerment when um, we're still moving and using sort of the uh, techniques and tools that have bound us, you know, that have bound mm-hmm. us and, um, and kept us away from actually connecting with our bodies in a deeper way. And And so a lot of things that we have cloaked as, uh, feminist or, or believed to be empowering are actually things that keep us out of relationship with our bodies, out of relationship and out of sync with, with nature. And, and that is not like from, from the lens that I'm standing in, that is not something that's advancing us, you know? In fact, mm. that's contributing to more of the disorder and the dis-ease that we encounter. And so, you know, while we talk about the body as a magical place, it's a real place, right? Like we all have real wounds and real experiences that have locked us away from certain experiences that should be our birthright, you know, certain, um, you know, experiences that many of us have had that have been traumatic or that have been, um, you know, boundaries that have been transgressed make it really uncomfortable to live in our bodies. And so, Mm. you know, part of, what I'm here to do is help people to look at that and to go to those places and to excavate, you know the the wounds and uncover healing that that's possible when we go to these places that are uncomfortable. And so um, i'm i'm re- I'm interested in interrogating this idea of, um, you know the the shrouded mystery and and really uncovering and and coming into relationship with what's sacred. Um, but it it should not be something that's uh, like new to us. It should be something mm-hmm. that's like, I mean, we should just have a relationship that's really um, open and really communicative and and, um, and joyful, you know. And and I think that most people, especially now when we're living in times where we're isolated, you know, are have a diminished. Relationship with their with their bodies and diminished connection with um, with um, intimacy with themselves, right? And Mm -hmm. I know that's so much of what you know, um, Rosebud Woman is about is you know igniting that that personal um, you know flame of intimacy. You know, like before even engaging with someone else, it's like understanding your body, nourishing, loving up on yourself, right? Like these are all things that we have to. We're wired for, but we have to like almost like rewire ourselves because we've we've unlearned many ways that have kept us whole. And um and unfortunately, mm. it does take work to like unbind from these systems that we've invested in.
0: Yeah, you said I think I'd like to just restate the question you asked people earlier. If you're sitting and listening to this. That question, what has turned you away from your body, is a really important one to begin with. And at the heart of that comment is once you identify what keeps you from self-love, if you're not loving yourself, it's really hard to ask for what you really deserve in a justice way. And so this, this is a part of the turning. It's like, I love myself so much that I have boundaries. I love myself so much that I ask for what's right and fair for me and my sisters. So there's that. But I have, I would like to go back to something you said here, um, uh, that there are things that are cloaked in feminist rhetoric that are actually disconnecting us from our actu- our bodies and our cycles and things. Can yeah. you speak to that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think things like, you know, um, birth control, for instance, right? It's like, and, and people get really inflamed, you know, when we talk about this, but, um, I mean, first of all, it has the word control in it, right? So it's, it's something if we think about like our cyclical nature and how often we're actually fertile in a month, right? So maybe up to six days in a month, you're fertile. Um, men are fertile every day, every second of every minute of every day, <laughs> right? And so, but there's no sort of mass movement to control their fertility, right? Or to control their, their means of, you know, um, getting someone else pregnant, right? Um, but there is this idea that you know we think about advancing ourselves and how can we move through the workplace and through educational environments and so forth. Um, we have to control something that's natural, right? And so now I'm stopping um, ovulation, suspending ovulation, right, which has costs, right? there is a, a there's a consequence, right for manipulating nature so uh there's a there's there's something that we have to weigh out right then we're introducing hormonal birth control well um there's a cost right for introducing um hormones that interact with our hormones and interact Mm -hmm. with our systems in ways that you know we may not that may not work well for us and by the way for reasons that are not necessarily um medical, like a lot of times these are for reasons that are cosmetic. These are for reasons uh, of convenience. Um, but not necessarily because there's like a medical indication, right? So we're forcing people onto, um, you know, uh, a medical product. And we're not actually thinking about well, what are the long term effects of telling my body not to ovulate? What does that mean for when I'm ready to actually get pregnant? What is that, what's that signaling do? What does this do to my own, um, you know, reproductive system? What does this do to my endocrine system? Um, mm-hmm. Also, what does this mean for um, my uh, heart health? What does this mean for my lungs? What does this mean? There's a lot of things, a lot of systems that are impacted. But when we get outside of that frame of just like my body, right, and, and what this communicates to my body and, and how I interact in the world, what does this mean in the world, right? So if I'm saying that, you know, I want to be able to choose when I can get pregnant, that's cool, Um, if I wanna choose when and and, and where and the time and all that, and I wanna time that, okay, cool, we wanna time that. Now, wouldn't it make sense to design spaces, meaning workspaces that are inherently feminist, right? that because what we're doing is we're actually engaging in these particular practices, whether it's um, taking birth control, whether it's uh, freezing your eggs, right? Which everyone's like, oh, this is so amazing. It's so feminist. It's not. What we're actually doing is we're again, modulating the systems of our body to give our best years to an organization or to a company to then put off something that we wanted to do in a different time to do in a time that's more convenient because we're punished by the way if we exit this system if we exit this 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 whether it's a corporate ladder or whatever it is the system that you're entering into it's designed for men these spaces are all designed for men's success right so when i go into one of these i'm defying my natural inclinations I'm defying my nature to enter into these spaces. I'm subliminating my needs when I compete with men in these spaces, and there's consequences for that. And so when we talk about all these advancements, it's like, well, what what are the consequences for all these things that we've forced ourselves into, by the way? I can talk to so many people who will say how stressed they are, how depleted they are, how tired they are, but nobody's thought to redesign these spaces to meet our needs nobody's getting menstrual leave when they're working these long hours and having to, you know, present on days where they're bleeding. And like, think about what it would be like if we designed around menses, think about what it'd be like in workspaces. If we said, you know what, when you decide to have a family, we're going to support you and we're not going to punish you. And you're going to have to basically start over when you come back into the workforce, right? Like that's why none of these products are feminist. Right. They're actually just Band-Aids for a system that we've decided to invest in. Right. That's inherently anti-feminist. So it's like you're
0: you're, so you're so you're so in my wheelhouse with this conversation, because that's what I went to the one of the best business schools in the country when I had three little kids. And then I tried to go to work in a corporate consulting environment afterwards. And it was why I became an entrepreneur. Because I wanted to be a great mother right. and I wanted to also use my talents and my training and there was no structure within it that would, that would really work for me. And I, I mean, it's, but, but I, I want to, I just want to put a story to that from like my family's experience. So my stepmother um, was the first VP at Ameritech and she had a young daughter. And um, you know, in her era, she had to wear business suits and right. wear those big floppy, floppy ties and like be so masculine and so tough. And so I feel like that first wave of gaining access was in, in order to make the men and the power structures comfortable, you had to mimic them. And then the second wave is like a relaxation, of uh, sort of, yeah, you can be a little bit more female or feminine um, reading. Uh, and then more recently, this huge wave of female founders who are trying to do exactly what you're saying. I mean, I just wanted to comp- to just point out the incredible advances in the last 50 years yes. in that front.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it's important. Like, I'm I'm not trying to say that like, I mean, it's possible for us to do what we're doing because of the sacrifices of people who had access to these tools. However, like it's not for everybody. And also, it's there are spaces, right? That we can mm. all be in and that we can be in together where mm. if we decide it's collectively to start taking care of our nature, if we start nurturing our nature, right? And what does that look like, right? What does it look like to fortify myself with the foods that I need? What does it look like to get adequate sleep? What does it look like to be hydrated? What does it look like to ingest the herbs and the plants of my mm. ambient landscape that will nourish yeah. me? Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's like a lot of these things that are bothering you or that are coming up as signals that things are out of balance will start to resolve themselves um, because a lot of these things start out benign. Right. And then over Mm -hmm. years of Mm -hmm. depletion become, you know, uh, signals for for illnesses, autoimmune disorders, disease, right, like down the line. And so I feel like, you know, having having practical and tactical skills, right, to guide ourselves and and look at like what our foremothers did. I look at what my grandmother did to take care of herself. She had this beautiful nighttime ritual that I used to watch her do, and it was it was combing her hair, it was grooming, it was braiding her hair every night. It was mm. her face, it was lathering her body with oils, and I watched my mother do the same and and teach us how to do that for ourselves. And and so I grew up like watching. People, women, who were busy and who were in the workforce, but then had these spaces that they created to ritualize what um, mm. what self care meant for them, and especially these are women who, you know, were were. I mean, I'm from a community that is oppressed, and so these are women who were like really pushing through barriers to make things happen for their families, and so they, so it wasn't like and indulgence. It was like a necessity to like mm. peel back the layers and rest and reflect. My mother used to get massages every Wednesday. She bought me a massage table. I think I was like it was like my college graduation gift, so that I could start to you know develop this practice of having regular massage. And it's not something that I do super frequently. It's something that it's, it is a part of my life. But my mom got it every Wednesday when I was growing up, right? And this is like something that I came to, to learn, but also I learned techniques as a child, you know, from hanging out with a massage therapist after my mom, you know, would go to sleep because on Wednesdays she would have her massage, she would go to bed and we would have had our dinner and be like looking after ourselves on Wednesday nights. And so again, that really sat with me in a very powerful way, right? Mm. That it is important to like, set these boundaries and and she did it was like it was like okay it's wednesday so we knew what time it was we knew how to kind of take care of ourselves because that mommy was going to be in bed and so i was cooking dinner for me and my sister and we were doing our thing and getting our homework done and whatever and she was resting and so we need to we need to engage in this way with each other we need to make sure that we teach you know the next generations how to look after themselves and not from a place of, oh, I'm depleted and broken down, now I'm gonna start to look after myself, but from a place of abundance, like there's enough time today, there is for me to just pour into myself, whether that's a few minutes or a few hours, there's time to do that. And so um, if we start to expand time and reframe it and not be moving at an accelerated pace, like this system wants us to do, Um, then we find pockets of time, right? We find a space of reflection. And I think that's really important. I think that that's what ritual invites us to do. I think that's what ceremony invites us to do. I think it's when we think about, you know, when I think about like, you know, your line for instance, it's not something you just like rush and throw on your skin or rush and like, (laughs) you know what I mean? You can't just like hurry up, right? It's something that you have to slow down to do. Otherwise you're not doing the practice, right? And so I think right. this is really important for us to like reclaim and remember. Like
0: you don't have to rush; you can slow down. Slowing down is a cr- in everything. Yes. makes it more exquisite. You in the when you were talking about your mom, I had this beautiful feeling of her self care being emergent, not a self care that's trying to fix something that's wrong with me. Right, and I that that quality of. Uh, It's an expression of self-love, not something that, you know, I have to get my nails fixed. I have to do this in order to be a better woman. So I I think the tonality in there is really beautiful. Um, For me, the anointing practice, um, you know, when I first started doing it, uh, touching my whole body from my toes all the way to my top of my head and then including the vulva and including the asshole and like just doing that every day with an affirmation and like, oh my God, look at how those sinews are formed, like really noticing my body. It took about 12 weeks of doing that practice every day until all of my body shame went away. It really was like an, an incantation over the components of my physicality that I had judged. It is it is magic and it was like slowing it down. I didn't do it until I was in my thirties. I wish I had done it from like five on. And mm-hmm. I have a bunch of girls, I wish they had done it too. <laughs> So this mm-hmm. is so beautiful. So that you you talk about, um, you said sacred sites and intimate topography earlier, and you also talk about birth as a sacred process. Can we switch over and go to the full spectrum doula? What, what is a doula and what is a full spectrum doula?
1: Yeah, so a doula is a non-clinical support person who provides um, emotional, physical, Educational, psychological, and um, and mental support, as well as um, partner support if you have a partner present, um, and and advocacy tools to help you navigate your uh, birth and postpartum period. Um, mm-hmm. These are people who are, you know, uh, to to sort of fill the gap between. Um, your providers, and uh, the supports that you would hopefully expect from family members that isn't always there because we're spread out and we live, you know, at this pace where, you know, we're not close to our villages. And so the doula is sort of like your, your birth keeper, the village keeper, you know, who, who supports and guides you in that process. And um, a full spectrum doula is someone who, Uh, supports the full spectrum of the reproductive continuum. So if you have people who come at the fertility period of their journey, you might have people who um, come during pregnancy and postpartum, you'll have folks who might come for abortion and loss. um, And then folks who might come as they are moving into their, um, into their, uh, menses and also folks who are moving into their perimenopause into the menopause um, uh, lane or or I would say um, area of of their lives Mm -hmm. and so um, primarily the work really I would say focuses on that middle area right so sort of sort of like a menses through through postpartum right so whatever Mm -hmm. happens along the way but um, but it includes everything from you know, menses all the way up to, to the last
0: bleeding. Yeah. And if you, if someone came to you and said, I'm preparing for conception, Mm -hmm. would you do the kinds of rituals or help them create ritual or, or self-care practices to prepare uh, physically, emotionally, like how might that look? Yeah. So
1: yeah, depending on what it is that they're looking to do, some people, um, they're looking for dietary uh, prescriptions for for things to do to kind of uh, prepare their body that way. Other people are gonna be more grounded in, um, you know, what's like the evidence-based research show about, uh, you know, toxins, what should I be eliminating from my, um, you know, kitchen and beauty routines and things like that. So it might be more um, sort of looking at like the, um, you know, how to in green someone's environment. Um, It would also possibly include um, redesigning or sort of reconfiguring their space to Mm. be more um, welcoming and and make space through rituals. And like you said, um, practices that could ground them in the possibility of of receiving. Reflections, meditations, uh, movement exercises and practices, somatic um, body practices as well that could help them mm. to to move in the direction of, of of that energy that they're looking to cultivate. So yes, yeah, so I would say it's like you know the way that I work is that all of these things are part of a experience. It's holistic and and, and deeply spiritual for sure. Um, there's people who you know, that might not be their thing. Right. And so those folks are getting, you know, more of the um, experience that's, uh, I mean, I don't work in this way, but people who just want like more informational support, you know, you can, you can work in that way with folks too. Right. And it might be like, Hey, I need, you know, I'm heading to this appointment where I have to get blood drawn. I'm super nervous or I'm going to get Mm -hmm. a stress Mm -hmm. test or whatever it is, is happening today. It might be checking in, doing some breath work, you know, checking in after the fact, you know, um, a lot of virtual support is happening right now um, because of COVID-19. And so, yeah, there's so many ways to support people, which is really beautiful, especially right now with helping people design their birth villages, right? Like who's a part of it? Who are the pr- the um, protective forces and who are some of these people that I'm going to look to, you know, to, to help me build the... Um, the community, um, which might include what's a, acupuncture. What's a birth
0: village? What's that? Yeah. So it's what's just really
1: like the people who support you along the journey. Right. And so hmm. who would have been there if we think ancestrally, um, it would have been like my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, you know, my cousins, like other, other women who would have been kind of in my community would have been part of that village that you know, um, the medicine woman, um, you know, the herbalist, you know, the the person who um, turns babies who are breech, right? Like all these people would have been part of my community, right? And, and when we were mm-hmm. living in villages. And so now it's like designing a community of people who are part of this village keeping that might not be family members, They but they might be professionals, right? That make up essentially, I guess your team, but it's really a village. It's everyone taking their, doing their part to take care of you and your um, unborn, right? And so it's, um it's a group of people, right? That
0: you, that you invite in to the experience. Yeah. Village is, village is such a better term than team. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, um, I had, I had, uh, my first two babies were in the hospital mm-hmm. and they were anesthetized and, and unwelcoming and cold. And then I had my third one at home mm. and I, and with the midwife and mm-hmm. there was a buffet in the other room and people <laughs> I loved were there. And right as I was pushing and, you know, vocalizing at the top of my lung, my best friend pulled up and brought the kids in just as the baby was out. Oh. And, um, and it was, and I can remember it was my, I, I consider it my first birth because I was squatting and I, and I felt the most immense power of God in creation moving through my body, mm-hmm. and then pushing that baby out was like an, uh, the most incredible orgasm. It was the, like an orgiastic response to life, mm. and and it was it, it was a completely transformative birth experience.
1: Beautiful. Um,
0: and it was a ten pound baby, so I was not like, you know, but I but I do I do wonder like what is lost if you if you if you go the route of being what's lost for you as a woman and what's lost from the community for witnessing the miracle of birth. So this thing, the village just reminded me of that whole scene. Like I'm almost tearing up remembering it uh, uh, because it wasn't just my birth and the baby. It was of course intimate between us, but it was also the whole, the whole extended family celebrating the arrival of new life.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Beautiful. So, yeah.
0: So you are, you're very tuned in. Um, to gardening and the earth and yoga and all of that stuff. So you're bringing a lot of uh, connection to nature, while at the same time being super technically savvy and being <laughs> able to run these online conferences oh, gosh, and do social media funny. and all that stuff. It's like a it's a very nice. Uh, it at least from the outside, you know, looks like a very lovely pole. And and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you design your life yeah. to support this ritual and connection to nature.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm from California, so it's just sort of in my um, in my bones a little bit to um, to anchor in this idea of, um, yeah, of of nature, of communing, with nature, of connecting. You know, I was studying with a master herbalist when I was young. and um and part of what I had to learn was to listen to the plants and which I learned to do and what that meant was um you know meditation it was meditating and i didn't know what meditation was until later in life and then i realized like oh i was doing that (laughs) you know when i had to be in um in nature with the plants and listening for the harvesting time you know and and so um i think what i'm bringing from my personal experience like of someone who you know, used to walk to school and we would forage our way to school. There would be blackberries that we knew where to go. Like, Oh, let's go this way because Mm. we can get their blackberries and we can go over here and their plums aren't ripe yet. So they're perfectly sour. And then we can go over here. Like we used to do this like windy trip home from school and all of us would just be eating fruit off the trees along the way. This is in the eighties. And, um, Mm. and it was awesome. There's also goats that were really close to our school. And so, um, on our way, and this did happen frequently, this idea of like the dog eating your homework, we, the, the goats would like eat stuff out of your bag or out of your hands. And so sometimes mm-hmm. our homework would actually be eaten by the goats. And so, um, but this was like an amazing kind of, uh, I would say foundational upbringing where I was just, all, I was always connected to the land because where we lived, like we had amazing forgiving soil, everything grew. Um, I was able to watch life cycles unfold. Um, we had a lot of stuff in our own garden that was just growing. And, um, and so for me, it was like having access to, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables all the time, every season, you know, was amazing and, and helped to, I think, anchor that connection to, to nature so that when I moved to New York, it was something that still lives inside of me. So everywhere that I've lived, I've always had, you know um i've always had either some sort of garden whether it's a window garden um i have a roof garden in the backyard in new york and um it's it's you know and in our kitchen we have a kitchen garden so there's always stuff that we're pulling fresh from there and i think that part of you know just like having access to the land you know being a tourist who mm. you know is very about grounding and <laughs> at being outside and being barefoot and being able to like put my feet in some soil is really important. And so um, I think that, you know, part of this, I guess, journey of, um, you know, living in a place that's so concrete um, and then seeking to create like the the aspects of what my upbringing was like and having plants and having, um, yeah, an environment that is, is grounding is really important to me and so i i do that through the expression of um you know keeping all the different types of house plants that we have and then also um keeping the outdoor plants so that we can grow things that we can eat but also things that um you know keep our um you know kind of lessen our footprint um environmentally you know um Mm -hmm. also for me you know with the background in, in plants and herbs, it's important to bring in um, the medicinals, you know, throughout the, 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 the cycle. And the cycle that I see is really like a year long um, journey in you know, assessing my needs and figuring out what plants are gonna be most nutritive for that season. And so um, along like with how we do with foods, many of us change the foods that we're eating because of the season and it's not necessarily even something that you do in an apparent way it just happens right that you're like oh i need a soup today it's kind of cold outside right um mm-hmm. or i need more stewed vegetables or you know um things of that nature casseroles whatever it is and then in the summer it's like oh i just want a salad or let's do avocado toast or whatever it is right you'll see yourself making these shifts on your own but when we get really more grounded in kind of um assessing our needs and really sort of eating the things that are uh available in our ambient landscape right um and just like locally like i do a lot of shopping at the farmers markets and so i get a lot of stuff that's just grown you know fresh and you know brought to us like the same day picked that morning whatever or you know i go to the grocery like we have a a whole food and stuff like that nearby right so I can get all that stuff too, but I really try to support the farmers that are, that are close by. And then I try to eat the things that are available now. Right. And so right now it's like, you know, what I'm loving, which is only available a few times a year is Concord grapes, which are going to be done mm. in like another week, but I keep buying like pounds and pounds of them. So, cause I eat them like, like dessert, you know, they're so amazing. Those are the
0: purple ones, right? The yes. Really the purple, purple ones that make yeah. amazing
1: jelly. Um, they have the seeds inside. Yeah, so I just I just eat those, like, all day. Um, but, you know, like, so to me, it's just that. It's just, like, attunement, right? It's, like, what's gonna make you feel grounded? What's gonna make you, um, you know, on a moment-to-moment basis, like, check in with yourself? And so I don't think even about, you know, um, like, when I think about, like, self-care and how we create space for ourselves, I think about it as, like, my entire day into the next day into the following like i don't think about it like oh like here's a slot in my day that i'm gonna just like you know um sliver in time to do this one thing i see it as like Mm -hmm. okay i'm on a continuum here's what my schedule is today cool and then i'm checking in constantly i'm like oh wow that was an intense conversation i should lay down you know or oof, you know, the news is going to be crazy for the next couple days. I'll I'll just not watch it, you know, or, um, you know, it's really beautiful out. And it's one of the last times that we'll see 70 degrees. I'm going to take a really long walk today. Um, You know what? I feel like I should harvest some peppers. You know, like I just am going to check in. And so for me, if I'm checking in like that, then I know that like, you know, it would feel good for me to do this right now. I'm going to do this right now. And then I'm going to come back to whatever it is that I have going on. And guess what? Things are still going to be there. Nothing's going to fall apart. Everything will be okay. And when we realize that and we we delegate and we make space for, you know, folks to rise up in in terms of leadership so that you can actually step away, then then you actually have like a a sense of, um, you know, like you feel grounded, but you also feel like you're now teaching other people how they engage with you, where the boundaries lie, where you begin, where you end, you know, and um, mm. and how to be in relationship with you. And when I've done that, whether it's through with the people on our team and other folks, it's really helpful because it does, um, it does create an opportunity for all of us to kind of reflect and and practice in ways like you know, respectfully of each other. And so I I imagine that when folks are having a hard time and they communicate that, that we make space for them too, and we model what we would like for people to do for us. And so it's like how you said that you are with your team. Um, and so I, I see it as like um, iterative, you know, the design. It's never like this is what my day looks like. It's always you know moving. Um, and and has the ability to shape in the way that it needs to, to, to meet whatever needs um, have to be met. But it's also really about like punctuating my day with play, punctuating my day with opportunities to reflect or to rest or to um, be in this space of wonder whatever that looks like right whether that's drawing or journaling or you know napping or cooking or harvesting or taking a walk whatever that is right just making space for that because that's really what's needed instead of you know waiting until we feel broken down to finally say oh now I'm gonna go get a massage or now I'm gonna go see the chiropractor or now I'm gonna go you know load up on all the these um immune boosting foods or whatever because i've pushed myself to the limit it's like well let's just not even push ourselves to the limit right let's look at like wow it feels like i'm moving in a direction it doesn't feel sustainable doesn't feel good i feel exhausted what do i do right now what would make me feel good right now right and then if we start to like listen to that i believe that the body is really um you know, responsive. And the body's also the arbiter of safety. Like it really wants to be in relationship with safety, right? And so it wants you to feel Mm -hmm. safe. And when you don't feel safe and and you're pushing yourself in directions that don't feel sustainable, your body will speak really clearly to you about that and will um, exhibit a response. And it's usually an inflammatory response because it's stress, right? And so we have Mm -hmm. to just learn to listen and to be obedient. And I think that we've been taught (laughs) that like obedience like the our lens for obedience is one that is about like you know authority figures and power dynamics and usually one centered around like you know dominance from men right but what i'm talking about is like a you know a bowing and a surrendering to the altar of your soul the altar of your spirit and and to the temple of your body and if you can't listen and and be obedient to your body then how are you going to be of service to other people? It's really hard, you know, to do the work that I do. If I'm like not in relationship with my body constantly, right. I have to rest.
0: I, I love this, like going from obey to a bow. Yeah. (laughs) Beautiful transition, but there's a, you know, so someone's just getting started on, you know, what do I need? Um, you know, when you go to a restaurant, for example, or you're going to eat something, close your eyes and ask your body, what do you actually need? This process of attunement is, uh, if you don't know it, if you've been entrained in the dominant treadmill system and you're so used to running and meeting others' expectations and not being able to stop, even a little pause can is a good place to start. Eventually, I might be like you, Latham. <laughs> I might, you know, eventually I might be able to be, you know, very in the moment flow, but ladies who are listening, anything that you can do to create a little bit more spaciousness to let your true need and desire come through is a welcome.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think it's a good way to, to, to just, I think even getting started, if you think about like, what is the, what is the part of the month or what is the action mm, or responsibility yeah. that, that weighs the heaviest on me? And um, and what would it look like if I did some things differently? So if I know that time is coming. And so I, I do this exercise. And it's one of the things I offer um, in my book, On Your Glow, people to think about if they're bleeding, for instance. So if you bleed, then for most people, that's a period where you're, a little bit more tired for the first few days at least you're a little bit more dreamy because it is a time that you're supposed to be reflecting and actually dreaming and fortifying yourself it's actually a fortification process even though it's a cleansing process and so but we're not right we're not in red tents and we're not you know tucked away with other people who are also bleeding and visioning we are instead commuting and forcing ourselves to do all kinds of things that we shouldn't be doing so If you in that period, for instance, right, if you naturally feel the inclination to rest, this is a good time to practice your boundary setting, right? Because if you know already Mm -hmm. I'm going to be super freaking tired, um, let me just like put a red line through this five to seven days and minimize the amount of stuff I take on during that period. So if you have a frequent enough cycle where you know when it's coming, you can predict then then block that time out and that's what i did to learn how to say no actually that was like my practice like that was my training ground for learning boundaries was designing around Mm -hmm. my cycle and then once i started Mm -hmm. to do that because i would say yes to like a lot of things that didn't feel good and then next thing you know it's like it's freaking winter it's four in the afternoon the sun is not out (laughs) you know what i mean i have to put on a coat it's 20 degrees i have to go schlep someplace Why did I say yes to this? Right. And so I started to say, okay, you know, during this time, I'm just going to say no to everything. And even if it's stuff I want to do, I'm just going to say no. So I can start to develop this muscle, but also so I can start to listen to how my body responds to me, putting myself first and also taking care of myself, especially in the period where I'm, where my body's actually going through a depletion, you know, through, through, through cleansing, right. And releasing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and what I found was that because of that practice, it was easier outside of that window when I was feeling well, like if I was moving into my follicular, follicular phase up to like ovulation, it was much easier to enjoy. And, 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 I, and I think I relished much more the periods where I was outwardly expressive because I was actually you know, um, intentional About the time that I did spend inside and that I did spend alone, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think that's a really powerful time to practice because for those of us who do have trouble, you know, um, maybe saying no or maybe, uh, you know, delegating or whatever it is, that's a really good time, especially if you have painful or symptomatic cycles. um, It will make a difference also in how your body responds in those periods when you start to, like, do less and and take off some of the stuff on your plate.
0: Yeah, you know, that would be a period to take a cab instead of the subway. That would be Definitely. a period to order in or to, you know, share meal responsibilities with the neighbor or whatever. They just whatever you can do to soften mm-hmm. the responsibilities in that time so you're not just doing this yourself you're also training other women to be sort of full spectrum doulas and offering programs like that if someone wanted to come and be trained and steep themselves in your viewpoint how would they do that
1: Yeah, so we have uh, trainings that we offer um they are through a digital platform now we used to do live trainings and our last one was March and a week later we were in um, the stay at home order was in place. and so we were in the um in the quarantine phase of of this year from March on. And I guess we're all still kind of in quarantine, right? So this has been a really fruitful period for us because while we were able to grow significantly um, from 2018 to 2020, You know, our programs were in New York, um, L.A., Miami, and Paris. But if you weren't in those regions, people were traveling, right? So we had people traveling from all over the country, all over the world. Um, In our last training, we had people from like Seattle, from uh, Tanzania, from uh, South Korea. I mean, it was amazing, right? And who all came to New York. Um, But then we had to shift to online. And I'm thankful for that shift because we were planning it for 2021, but it must, it, you know, God had plans too. So it came sooner. And we've been able to accommodate so many more students. And it's been amazing to be able to offer, um, the training in this format that could meet people's needs while they were in quarantine and also to meet different types of, um, folks needs that may not have been able to join in person because they had children or, they obviously were in a location that wasn't close enough or it was cost prohibitive, right? Like now it's a different setup. And mm-hmm. so it's much easier for people to, to join. And we have a lot of amazing folks that have joined us from, you know, doctors to nurses, to um, public health officials, to um, actors and actresses. I mean, all kinds of people have have like really... You know, um, committed themselves to this work and in this time. And really, our commitment through this work is to really be looking at uh, birth equity and again through a reproductive justice framework and a lens that is about, um, you know, making sure that people, especially Black women in this time and Native American women in this time are able to give birth safely. Um, we're in a time where um, Black women and Native American women are four to five times more likely than white women to die during childbirth or due to childbirth-related causes. And so mm-hmm. what that means, in a place like New York, that number jumps to from, from um, four to five times to eight to 12 times more likely to die. And in a time like COVID, it means that we're especially vulnerable. And so the doulas that we are educating are able to serve people along the reproductive continuum, but especially folks that are um, vulnerable and underestimated. And it is important for us that people have the skill sets to be able to navigate um, the medical system, which is uh, steeped in racism. Um, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, um, you know, fatphobia, uh, ableism, right? All of these things that people encounter mm-hmm. that make them feel unsafe. And so we have to teach from a framework that that makes it safe for people to go into these spaces if should they choose to to enter the medical system, but also be able to help educate people about out of hospital options, right? It's really important for people to know that you know if they're a candidate for home birth, that home birth is an option, right? And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, they they should be able to explore all types of birth options, right? What does home birth look like? What does birth center birth look like? Out of hospital birth has to be an option for people who are low risk, so they have the opportunity to um, explore something outside of the hospital that might be different for them, right? And so, um, you know, part of that is, you know, it. A part of our education, right, is is helping people to decide what what works for them, and providing them with the educational tools to make that kind of decision, right? Not everybody has access to, um, you know, the provider of their choice. Unfortunately, there are many um, roadblocks that exist that are real. There are many barriers that exist um, outside of just, um, you know, the potential for. Um, Maternity deserts where there's poor access to uh, providers or provider base. There's also insurance, you know, um, apartheid, right, where we see people being uh, treated and having uh, access to certain types of uh, treatments and procedures um, and screenings based on their insurance type um, and also providers based on their insurance type. We see inconsistent providers. We see things happening, you know, where um, Black women and women of color will say that they show up and they're undertreated for uh, pain management. Um, that they're that they're seen as impervious to pain, and so they won't be treated at all in many cases. Um, and and a lot of these belief systems stem back to um, you know enslavement and these have been ideas that have been carried down for hundreds of years right and so we're having to be up against uh, a beast we talk about uh, navigating a system that we're not talking about people but we're talking about a system that sort of carries cultural beliefs and and treats people in ways where they're not safe and so you know now we're sort of finding in culture that there's a normalization and and uh, a conversation i would say around this um the the maternal health crisis in this country and and uh there's a lot of work to be done to eradicate it um on a policy level on a um i would say on a community level you know we've been working uh, in our communities for years, everyone has been working on this, but I think now there's attention, and so people are trying to figure out what they can do um, to help. And there's so many things people can do. But one thing that you can do, you know, if you are interested in becoming a birth worker, is you can take a doula training, and you can, you know, support a local organization, one that, um, you know, is where you're located. You can do a training online you can support someone who's on their path to become a doula by donating to their training uh sometimes the the cost is a is a problem for people and so you know contributing to um to funds to donate you know for for doula trainings we have a um we have a donation button on our, on our website that um, allows people to donate um any amount to contribute to uh the the fund to support doulas who may not be able to afford their tuition um you know you can also support midwifery right and we know that of of the contingency of midwives that serve this country only 2 per, less than 2% of them are black midwives right and so we know that we need more of them so you can also do the same where you can contribute to a scholarship program at a company or at a school or university you know that will go towards um, funding uh, a midwifery um, certification you know a program for someone who's going through school Um, and you can also support your local midwives by also putting together a donation fund for clients that they have that are coming through that may not be able to afford the services and stuff so there's a lot of things you can do community-wise in addition to you know looking at some of the policy uh, shifts that are happening, and some of the um, the bills that are in place that are look that we're looking to pass. there's a maternal health momnibus Act, which is a bundle of bills that are they're in revision right now, but um, they were presented at the hundred and sixteenth Congress, and really this this sort of uh, package of bills looks at everything from um, you know, supporting incarcerated um, moms and making sure that they have access to uh, proper um, birth supports, to uh, making sure that community organizations that are offering doulas um, get better funding, um, to making sure that there's better reporting of maternal um, health outcomes so that we can actually uh, assess what is happening when um, there's a near misses and actual maternal deaths, right? And so we can adequately report and make sure to hold um, institutions accountable when um, when moms die in childbirth, right? Because it should not be happening.
0: So on the policy level, we'll put in the show notes where you can um, ask your representative to support those bills. And if you're listening, you might recall Dr. Janine Anderson, who was on in April or May of this year. And she's a um, maternal health communication expert. She works with doctors to address their unconscious bias and with women, um, particularly women of color, to speak their needs aloud and demand, trains them how to demand um, attention and to identify bias in the office in a specific way. So she's worked, so that might be interesting for the listeners who are um, committed to changing the structural problems, like to go and listen to Janine's podcast as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when we're talking about the structural changes, I think it's important for people to know that, like, it it sounds really great, like trainings sound great. They don't work, because we're talking about a system that's been in place for hundreds of years, right? So there's no amount of training, or books, or like, courses possible to be able to unseat the wound that is so deep right and unseat the harm that has happened over the course of hundreds of years and that could actually bring back the lives lost right so i think it's important not to um like place in uh, a space of um of accountability, um, this, this piece, like it's, cause it's not going to happen in our lifetime. Like these changes will take place over time, but we won't see the effects of these changes. Right. And so I think it's important for us to know that like, we can all do our part every day. Um, but we're talking about like slaying a dragon, right. We're talking about taking down something that's been, uh, that's going to take a long time to dismantle and there has to be people committed to that dismantling and there has to be people committed to building the future right and um and so part of what we're doing in legacy building is is really creating a future building a future because when whatever this is falls down people are going to need a place to go right and we want to have that thing built when it's time and and really um, when we're talking about going inside of a place that's roots are Directly connected and and motivated, but also were um, advanced by the transatlantic slave trade. There's no way to really um, reconcile and actually move to a place of of reform when that's the foundation, right? Um, our our system, you know, when we talk about reproductive health, when we talk about gynecology the gynecological field was advanced by um, the transatlantic slave trade, right? Because um, there had to be healthy enslaved women, bond women who could actually bear children, right? And so all the pathologies that were treated were for the advancement and um, the health, right? um, Of white women, however, right? It was also to make sure that these people could actually procreate. And so all the advancements, including the procedures, also the tools that we still use to this day, when we go in for um, pap smears, we go in for any treatment where they're gonna open up and look at your cervix, right? If they're gonna use a speculum, they were testing out shapes for speculums. J. Marion Sims was testing this out on enslaved women with no anesthesia treating gynecological issues with no anesthesia cutting people open for doing surgical procedures with no anesthesia right on um black women right with no consent and so this is like the foundation this is the blood that's on the hands right of of our system that's never been addressed and there's never been an atonement and there's never been a um a reckoning and so that's our commitment right is to focus on future building, futurism, right? Envisioning something that's possible that is really about liberation.
0: Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining me and Latham. We had a little recording issue at the close. So I want to just remind you that this amazing being's work is available at mamaglow.com. And if you're able to spare um, some extra money please make a donation to support women who are moving into doula education and to support maternal equity at the same site there's a little donate button up in the top right to the health and well-being of mamas everywhere have a great day see you next time